0: Greetings, and welcome back. I'm Russ Johnson. Thank you to everybody who has decided to continue on this journey with me. Most of you have probably already read the Icewind Dale trilogy. But for some of you, this will be a new story experience. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a little envious. So, let's not delay any further. Book One of the Icewind Dale Trilogy. The Crystal Shard by R. A. Salvatore. Prelude. The demon sat back on the seat it had carved in the stem of the giant mushroom. Sludge slurped and rolled around the rock island, the eternal oozing and shifting that marked this lair of the abyss. Ertu drummed its clawed fingers its horned, ape-like head lolling about on its shoulders as it peered into the gloom. "'Where are you, Telshaz? the demon hissed, expecting news of the relic. Crenshinibon pervaded all of the demon's thoughts. With the shard in its grasp, Urtu could rise over an entire lair, maybe even several lairs, and Urtu had come so close to possessing it. The demon knew the power of the artifact. Ertu had been serving seven liches when they combined their evil magics and made the crystal shard. The liches, undead spirits of powerful wizards that refused to rest when their mortal bodies had passed from the realms of the living, had gathered to create the most vile artifact ever made, an evil that fed and flourished off of that which the purveyors of good considered most precious, the light. Of the sun. But they had gone beyond even their own considerable powers. The forging actually consumed the seven, Crenshinibon stealing the magical strength that preserved the Lich's undead state to fuel its own first flickers of life. The ensuing bursts of power had hurtled Urtu back to the abyss, and the demon had presumed the shard had been destroyed. But Krenshinabon would not be so easily destroyed. Now, Centuries later, Urtu had stumbled upon the trail of the crystal shard again. A crystal tower, Krishal Tirith, with a pulsating heart, the exact image of Krenshinibon. Ertu knew that magic was close by. The demon could sense the powerful presence of the relic. If only it could have found the thing earlier. If only it could have grasped. But then, al had arrived— an angelic being of tremendous power. al banished Urtu back to the abyss with a single word. Urtu peered through the swirling smoke and gloom when it heard the sucking footsteps. Telshaz, the demon bellowed. Yes, my master. The smaller demon answered, cowering as it approached the mushroom throne. Did he get it? Ertu roared. Does Aldimanera have the crystal shard? Telshaz quivered and whimpered. Yes, my lord. Uh, well, no, my lord. Ertu's evil eyes narrowed. He could not destroy it, the little demon was quick to explain. Crencinibon burned his hands. Ha! Ertu snorted. Beyond even the power of Altimanira. Where is it then? Did you bring it or does it remain in the second crystal tower? Telshaz whimpered again. It didn't want to tell its cruel master the truth, but it would not dare to disobey. "No, master, not in the tower," the little demon whispered. "No!" Ertu roared. "Where is it?" I'll demon Neera threw it. Through it. Across the plains, merciful master, Telshaz cried, with all of his strength. Across the very plains of existence, Ertu growled. I I tried to stop him, but... The horned head shot forward. Telshaz's words gurgled indecipherably as Ertu's canine maw tore its throat out. Far removed from the gloom of the abyss, Krenshinaban came to rest upon the world. Far up in the northern mountains of the Forgotten Realms, the crystal shard, the ultimate perversion, settled into the snow of a bowl-shaped dell, and waited. Book One, Ten Towns. If I could choose what life would be mine, it would be this life that I have now at this time. I am at peace, and yet the world around me swirls with turmoil, with the ever-present threat of barbarian raids and goblin wars, with tundra and gigantic polar worms. The reality of existence here in Icewind Dale is harsh indeed, an environment unforgiving, where one mistake will cost you your life. That is the joy of the place the very edge of disaster, and not because of treachery, as I knew in my home of Menzo I can accept the risks of Icewind Dale. I can revel in them and use them to keep my warrior instincts finely honed. I can use them to remind me every day of the glory and joy of life. There is no complacency here, in this place where safety cannot be taken for granted, where a turn in the wind can pile snow over your head, where a single misstep on a boat can put you in a water that will steal your breath away and render muscles useless in mere seconds. Or a simple lapse on the tundra can put you in the belly of a fierce yeti. When you live with death so close, you come to appreciate life all the more. And when you share that life with friends like those I have come to know these last years, then you know paradise. Never could I have imagined in my years in Mensa Baransin, or in the wilds of the Underdark, or even when I first came to the surface world, that I would ever surround myself with such friends as these. They are of different races, all three, and all three different from my own, and yet they are more like with what is in my heart than anyone I have ever known, save perhaps my own father, Zach Nefane, and the ranger montelio who train me in the ways of my leaky. I have met many folks up here in ten towns, in the savage land of Icewind Ale, who accept me despite my dark elf heritage, and yet these three, above all others, have become as family to me. Why them? Why Bruner, Regis, and Caterbury above all others? Three friends whom I treasure as much as Gwenhyver, my companion for all these years? Everyone knows Bruner as blunt— that is the trademark of many dwarves. But in Brunner, the trait runs pure. Or so he wants all to believe. I know better. I know the other side of Brunner, the hidden side, that soft and warm place. Yes, he has a heart, though he tries to bury it. He is blunt, yes, particularly with criticism. He speaks of errors without apology and without judgment, Simply telling the honest truth and leaving it up to the offender to correct or not correct the situation, Bruner never allows tact or empathy to get in the way of his telling the world how it can be better. But that is only half of the tale concerning the dwarf on the other side of the coin, he is far from blunt. concerning compliments. Bruner is not dishonest, just quiet. Perhaps that is why I love him. I see in him Icewind Dale itself, cold and harsh and unforgiving, but ultimately honest. He keeps me at my best all the time, and in doing that, he helps me to survive in this place. There is only one Icewind Dale, and only one Bruner Battlehammer, and if ever I met a creature and a land created for each other. Conversely, Regis stands, or more appropriately, reclines, as a reminder to me of the goals and rewards of a job well done. Not that Regis is ever the one who does the job. Regis reminds me, and Brunner, I would guess, that there is more to life than responsibility, that there are times for personal relaxation and enjoyment of the rewards brought about by good work and vigilance. He is too soft for the tundra, too round in the belly, and too slow on his feet. His fighting skills are lacking, and he could not track a herd of caribou on fresh snow. Yet, he survives, even thrives up here with wit and attitude, with an understanding, better than Brunner's, surely, and even better than my own, of how to appease and please those around him, of how to anticipate rather than just react on the moves of others. Regis knows more than just what people do. He knows why they do it. And that ability to understand motivation allowed him to see past the color of my skin and the reputation of my people. If Brunner is honest in expressing his observations, then Regis is honest in following the course of his heart. And finally, there is Caterbury. Wonderful and so full of life. Caterbury is the opposite side of the same coin to me, a different reasoning to reach the same conclusions. We are soulmates who see and judge different things in the world to arrive at the same place. Perhaps we thus validate each other. Perhaps in seeing Caterbury arriving at the same place as myself, and knowing that she arrived there along a different road, tells me that I followed my heart truly. Is that it? Do I trust her more than I trust myself? That question is neither an indictment of my feelings, nor any self-incrimination. We share beliefs about the way the world and the way the world should be. She is akin to my heart as is my leaky, and if i found my goddess by looking honestly into my own heart, then so I've found my dearest friend and ally. They are with me, all three, and Gwenhyver, dear Gwenhyver as well. I'm living in a land of stark beauty and stark reality, a place where you have to be wary and alert and at your very best at all times. I call this paradise. Drizd Duarden Chapter One The Stooge When the wizard's caravan from the host tower of the Arcane saw the snow-capped peak of Kelvin's Karn rising from the flat horizon, they were more than a little relieved. The hard journey from Luskin to the remote frontier settlement known as Ten Towns had taken more than three weeks. The first week hadn't been too difficult— The troop held close to the Sword Coast, and though they were traveling along the northernmost reaches of the realm, the summer breezes blowing in off the trackless sea were comfortable enough. But when they rounded the westernmost spur of the Spine of the World, the mountain range that many considered the northern boundary of civilization, and turned into Icewind Dale, the wizards quickly understood why they had been advised against making this journey. Icewind Dale, a thousand square miles of barren, broken tundra, had been described to them as one of the most unwelcoming lands in all the realms. And within a single day of traveling on the northern side of the Spine of the World, Eldeluk Dendibar the Modeled and the other wizards from Luskin considered the reputation well earned. Bordered by impassable mountains on the south, an expanding glacier to the east, and an unnavigable sea of countless icebergs on the north and west, Icewind Dale was attainable only through the pass between the Spine of the World and the coast a trail rarely used by any but the most hardy of merchants. For the rest of their lives, two memories would ring clear in the wizards' minds whenever they thought about this trip, two facts of life on Icewind Dale that travelers here never forgot. The first was the endless moaning of the wind, as though the land itself was continuously groaning in torment, and the second was the emptiness of the dale, mile after mile of gray and brown horizon lines the caravan's destination marked the only varying features in all the dale. Ten small towns positioned around the three lakes of the region, under the shadow of the only mountain, Kelvin's Carn. Like everyone else who came to this harsh land, the wizards sought ten-town scrimshaw, the fine ivory carvings made by the headbones of the knucklehead trout which swam in the waters of the lakes. Some of the wizards, though, had even more devious gains in mind. The man marveled at how easily the slender dagger slipped through the folds of the older man's robe and then cut deeper into his wrinkled flesh. Morkai the Red turned on his apprentice, his eyes locked into a widened, amazed set at the betrayal by the man he had raised as his own son for a quarter of a century. Akhar Kessel let go of the dagger and backed away from his master, horrified that the mortally wounded man was still standing. He ran out of distance for his retreat. Stumbling into the rear wall of the small cabin the wizards of Luskin had been given as temporary quarters by the host city of Easthaven, Kessel trembled visibly, pondering the grisly consequences he would face in light of the growing possibilities that the magical expertise of the old mage had found a way to defeat even death itself. What terrible fate would his mighty mentor impose upon him for such betrayal? What magical torments could a true and powerful wizard such as Morkai conjure that could outdo the most agonizing of the tortures common throughout the land? The old man held his gaze firmly on Akkar Kessel, even as the last light began to fade from his dying eyes. He didn't ask why. He didn't even outwardly question Kessel about the possible motives. The gain of power was involved somewhere, he knew. That was always the case in such betrayals." What confused him was the instrument, not the motive. Kessel? How could Kessel, the bumbling apprentice whose stuttering lips could barely call out the simplest of cantrips, possibly hope to profit from the death of the only man who had ever shown him more than basic, polite consideration? Morcai the Red fell dead. It was one of the few questions he had never found the answer to. Kessel remained against the wall, needing its tangible support, and continued to shake for long minutes. Gradually, the confidence that had put him in this dangerous position began to grow again within him. He was the boss now. Eldeluk, Dendabar the Modeled, and the other wizards who had made the trip had said so. With his master gone, he, Akar Kessel, would be rightfully awarded his own meditation chamber and alchemy lab in the host tower of the Arcane in Luskin. Eldeluk, Dendabar the Modeled, and the others had said so. It is done, then, the burly man asked when Kessel entered the dark alley designated as the meeting place. Kessel nodded eagerly. The red-robed wizard of Luskin shan't cast again, he proclaimed, too loudly for the likes of his fellow conspirators. Speak quietly, fool, Dendabar the mottled, A frail-looking man tucked defensively within the alley's shadows, demanded in the same monotonous tone he always used. Dendebar rarely spoke at all, and never displayed any semblance of passion when he did. Ever was he hidden beneath the low-pulled cowl of his robes. There was something cold-blooded about Dendebar that unnerved most people who met him, though the wizard was physically the smallest and least imposing man on the merchant caravan that had made the four-hundred-mile journey to the frontier settlement of Ten Towns. Kessel feared him more than all the others. Morcai the Red, my former master, is dead,' Kessel reiterated softly. "'Akar Kessel, this day forward known as Kessel the Red, is now appointed to the Wizard's Guild of Luskin.' "'Easy, friend,' said Eldelock, putting a comforting hand on Kessel's nervously twitching shoulder. "'There will be time for a proper coronation when we return to the city.' He smiled and winked at Dendebar from behind Kessel's head. Kessel's mind was whirling, lost in a daydream, searching through all the ramifications of this pending appointment. Never again would he be taunted by the other apprentices, boys much younger than he who climbed through the ranks in the guild step by tedious step. They would show him some respect now, for he would leap beyond even those who had passed him by the earliest days of his apprenticeship into the honorable position of wizard. As his thoughts probed every detail of the coming days, though, Kessel's radiant face suddenly grayed over. He turned sharply on the man at his side, his features tense as though he had discovered a terrible error. Elderluck and several of the others in the alley became uneasy. They all fully understood the consequences if the archmage of the host tower of the arcane ever learned of their murderous deed. The robe? Kessel asked. Should I have brought the red robe? Eldelock couldn't contain his relieved chuckle, but Kessel merely took it as a comforting gesture from his newfound friend. I should have known that something so trivial would throw him into a fit, Eldelock told himself, but to Kessel he merely said, Have no fear about it. There are plenty of robes in the host tower. It would seem a bit suspicious, would it not, if we showed up at the Archmage's doorstep claiming the vacated seat of Mordecai the Red, and holding the very garment about the murdered wizard was wearing when he was slain. Kessel thought about it for a moment, then agreed. Perhaps, Eldeluk continued, you should not wear the red robe. Kessel's eyes squinted in panic. His old self-doubts, which had haunted him all of his days since his childhood, began to bubble up within him. What was Eldeluk saying? Were they going to change their minds and not award him the seat he had rightfully earned?' Elderluck had used the ambiguity of his statement as a tease, but he didn't want to push Kessel into a dangerous state of doubt. With a second wink at Dendabar, who was inwardly thoroughly enjoying this game, he answered the poor wretch's unspoken question. I only meant that perhaps a different color would better suit you. Blue would complement your eyes. Kessel cackled in relief. Perhaps, he agreed, his fingers nervously twiddling. Dendabar suddenly grew tired of this farce. He motioned for his burly companion to be rid of the annoying little wretch. Eldeluk obediently led Kessel back down the alleyway. Go on now, back to the stables, he instructed. Tell the master there that the wizard shall be leaving for Luskin this very night. But what of the body? Kessel asked. Eldeluk smiled evilly. Leave it. That cabin is reserved for visiting merchants and dignitaries from the south. It will most probably remain vacant until next spring. Another murder in this part of the world will cause little excitement, I assure you. And even if the good people of East Haven were to decipher what was truly happening, they're wise enough to tend to their own business and leave the affairs of wizards to wizards. The group from Luskin moved out into the waning sunlight of the street. Now be off. Eldelok commanded. Look for us as the sun sets. He watched as kessel like some elated little boy scurried away. How fortunate to find so convenient a tool, Dendabar noted. The wizard's stupid apprentice saved us much trouble. I doubt that we would have found a way to get at that crafty old one. Though the gods alone know why ever did morcai have a soft spot for his wretched little apprentice soft enough for a dagger's point laughed elderluck and so convenient a setting remarked dendebar unexplained bodies are considered no more than an inconvenience to the cleaning wenches in this uncivilized outpost the burly elderluck laughed aloud The gruesome task was at last completed. They could, finally, leave this barren stretch of frozen desert and return home. Kessel's step was sprightly as he made his way across the village of Easthaven to the barn where the wizard's horses had been stabled. He felt as though becoming a wizard would change every aspect of his daily life, as if some mystical strength had somehow been infused into his previously incompetent talents. He tingled in anticipation of the power that would be his. An alley cat crossed before him, casting him a wary glance as it pranced by. Slit-eyed, Kessel looked around to see if anyone was watching. Why not? he muttered, pointed a deadly finger at the cat. He uttered the command words to call forth a burst of energy. The nervous feline bolted away at the spectacle, but no magical bolts struck it, or even near it. Kessel looked down at his singed fingertip and wondered what he'd done wrong. But he wasn't overly dismayed. His own blackened nail was the strongest effect he'd ever gotten from that particular spell.